So glad to be with you all. As always, when I get a chance to be up here, it is my pleasure and a privilege to open up God's Word with you today. So if you do have your Bibles with you, I'll invite you to go ahead and take them out at this time and open them up to the Gospel of Mark. Of course, for those of you who've been with us for a bit, uh, we've been in this book for a little bit now. We're headed to the eighth chapter this morning. So we're getting to the halfway point, if you can believe that. And uh, we continue in this, I think, wonderful series, Jesus, Servant, Redeemer, and Friend. So again, Mark chapter 8, we're going to be looking at the first 21 verses of that chapter. That's our text for this morning. That is where we're headed. But I want to begin, as you're headed there, with a quick story, which I hope will help introduce the subject matter in our text, in some way at least. So a few years ago, I was on the window seat of an airplane, headed out of SeaTac Airport, heading over to Pennsylvania. Uh, That's where I'm from. My family's over there. And back in Pennsylvania, we have these hills that we call mountains. (laughs) And here, I have learned that there are mountains, and then there's mountains. And this mountain here, you get a different view of it. In an airplane. I know you've all seen the mountain before. But have you ever really looked at it? And gone wow. And so I'm in the window seat of this airplane. And I'm looking outside. And I see the mountain. And it is wider than I've ever seen it. Snow everywhere. And I'm amazed. And I see in the middle of this snow this kind of dark black brownish thing that I couldn't quite make out what it was. And it caught my attention. And it had very sharp uh, edges to it. And I'm looking at it and I'm wondering, what could this thing be? Is it, uh, you know, like an edge of a cliff or a, a human hut of some sort? It seemed almost like square. And I'm looking at this thing and I'm just zoomed in, focused on this thing. And I'm hoping as I'm looking at this thing, I just can't quite make it out. You know, your eyes can only zoom in so far. I'm completely as focused as I possibly could be on this thing. And I was hoping that, you know, the airplane could bank around and turn towards the mountain so I could see it better. And that's when I realized that I'd been staring at this thing for I don't know how long. And it was the same thing. And we were moving. And that's when I realized I'd been staring at the wing of the airplane. That whole time, I was looking at an airplane wing, and I thought it was the mountain. Genuinely believed it. I was looking at it. It was cloudy, okay? Uh, True story. My mind was transformed in that instant. Um, I'm really glad I didn't look over to my neighbor and say, have you seen how beautiful that thing is? (laughs) It's a silly story, but I'm hoping that it can help illustrate a point for us. Because what I did on that airplane is exactly what our hearts are prone to do all the time. Focus on the wrong thing. And when we focus on the wrong thing, we lose our bearings, our sight of what's real, of reality. We lose sight of of who's who and, and what's what. We aren't seeing what we ought to be seeing. Most importantly, 
we can lose sight of the most important truth that there is. That Jesus is Lord of all. How often we forget that. Things distract us. The things of this present world. We get so caught up in them. We get caught up in either the present pain. It can be so hard that it makes us forget. Or it can be so nice. We get caught up in the present pleasure that we we forget what truly matters in the long run. We are very earthly minded by default. We're so materially minded that we forget that's not all there is to life. We tend to, as physical beings, place a higher uh, value on the physical reality over the spiritual because that is what our physical eyes are seeing and ears hearing. But in our text today, we're going to hear Jesus say these words. Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? In other words, he was talking to his disciples here. You're not getting it. You're not understanding And for the disciples, they weren't seeing what Jesus wanted them to in our text. Most importantly, they weren't seeing and fully grasping who was in front of them and what he was doing. As we're going to see in our text, the disciples were too busy to see all this because they were trying to figure out where their next meal was going to come from. Such a small thing. They were focused on their bellies. Jesus was focused on their hearts. So in this text, as we look at the disciples and we're going to see that they are rather dull here, uh, it might seem tempting to, you know, make fun of them a little bit. Uh, As tempting as that might be, it's not an opportunity for us to do that, to make fun. It's an opportunity for us to look in the mirror, to look in the mirror to see that what these men are going to do on this boat with Jesus is exactly what our own hearts do all the time. We so often fail to see and to understand, to see and remember what's important, to remember especially this, who's in the boat with us. As followers of Jesus, it's going to be our challenge to fight, to remember, to remember And to continually, again and again, immerse ourselves in the truth of who Jesus is and what he's about. We must be those with soft hearts. Hearts that want to come to Jesus, genuinely seeking to see and to understand what it is that he has for us. And what I think we'll learn in our text today is that the more we turn our eyes to Jesus, the more we will see and understand. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Sound good? All right. I want to pause now and pray. Ask for God's help for our time in his word. Then we'll, we'll read the text together and get into it. But first, let's pray. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we do take a deep breath now and pause before we jump into your word to thank you for it. Thank you for this book. Thank you for revealing yourself to us in these pages. And that is our prayer this morning, that you would 
Use this time to do just that. Show us anew who you are and the truth you have for us. Give us indeed eyes that see and ears that hear the truth you want us to see and understand. So take that truth, plant it deep in our hearts in a way that we not just understand it, but that it molds us, shapes us, changes how we live in obedience to you. Lord, we need your help for this. So that's why we pause now to ask just for that, for your help, your helping presence. Would you be with us now as we go? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you got your Bibles? Mark chapter 8. We're going to be going through these first 21 verses of this chapter. So we'll take our time with it. This is God's word. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves. And having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went into the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000? How many baskets full of broken pieces 
did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? As we prepare to dive into this, I want to take a look at that last verse first. So that we have these words of Jesus here almost ringing in our ears throughout this message. Because Jesus' question here to his disciples, I think it can also serve as a direct and pointed question to all of Mark's readers. That would be us. Jesus asked this to his disciples, yes, but to us. Do you not yet understand? Understand what exactly? Well, the point of all this. Who Jesus is. What is it that Mark proclaims as he starts out this gospel, his writing? In chapter 1, verse 1, right away he comes out with his thesis. This book is about the good news about Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. It's about the identity of this man named Jesus from Nazareth. He's the Christ, the Son of God. What is it that Mark has been carefully laying out in the seven chapters prior leading up to this, to chapter 8? What is he trying to communicate to his readers as he records this man, Jesus, cleanse the leper, give sight to the blind, speech to the mute, hearing to the deaf, working limbs to the lame? No, who more? Who feeds thousands and thousands of people with a few loaves and fish? who walks on the water, who has authority to cast out demons and command the storm to cease and to raise a little girl from the dead by simply saying, arise. No, this man is not simply a person who does all things well, as the people remark at the end of chapter 7. No, Mark is trying to communicate something to us. Do you not yet understand? This man, Jesus, is no mere man at all. This is the very Son of God in human flesh. And the disciples, they are just about to come to that understanding, at least in part. Peter's famous confession, you are the Christ It's coming up later in this chapter. We're not quite there yet, so spoiler alert. You'll cover that next week. But in our text, it's very clear the disciples aren't quite there yet. And on some level, I think that should be comforting to us. That these guys, these guys, the guys in the boat with Jesus, his Followers, the ones who are closer to Jesus than anybody else, who indeed saw with their own eyes these amazing things that Jesus is doing. They heard with their own ears Jesus teaching and explaining things to them. The fact that these guys who witnessed all these incredible things, who walked with Jesus, who indeed were in the boat with him, the fact that these guys don't quite get it, it allows us to identify, hey, they're just like me. They're just like me, very much not perfect, very much not having it all figured out, very much missing the point sometimes, and very much needing help to understand. So yes, in one sense, I think it's a comfort for us to to look at these disciples and see that we're not alone in the struggle to understand. 
But in order for that to be comforting, we need to at first admit that this is something we struggle with. And that's going to be our approach to the text this morning, is to see in these disciples the same struggle in our own hearts. The same tendency to focus on the wrong thing and miss the point. And in our text, this struggle for the disciples is uh, rather prominently on display as the thing that distracts them from Jesus. And the point is this simple, small thing, their need for bread. And furthermore, this need for bread is um, right after Jesus has miraculously feeded thousands of people with bread. And they're a small party. (laughs) So not a great look for these guys to be worrying about bread when they've just witnessed this. But remember, when we say that, not a good look for them, we're looking in the mirror here. So not a great look for us either because we do this same thing. We forget what God has just done. So I want to look at this feeding And let's make some observations here together. We're going to go back, start in verse 1, make some observations about Jesus feeding this huge crowd and what the disciples have just been through. So chapter 8, verse 1, again. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd. Because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on their way. And some of them have come from far away. Okay, we'll stop there for a moment. I put on your study sheets there. I I hope you'll find those study notes helpful. Uh, That first headline. Wait a minute. This seems familiar. We've been here before. Hopefully that's what the disciples were thinking because they just were. It should seem familiar. It wasn't all that long ago in chapter 6 that Mark depicts a very similar kind of thing happening with a crowd, in that case, numbering 5,000 men. That's the number we're given. The number listed in our text is 4,000. Hungry people then, hungry people now. Jesus is going to do the same thing. He has compassion and he's going to feed the crowd. These stories are so similar to each other that some have suggested that Mark is describing the same event twice. I don't think that's the case at all. And I think if you look closely at each text, you'll see some pretty key differences that will lead you to that same conclusion. Uh, Not including the fact that Jesus, when he's kind of scolding the disciples, says, refers to them as separate events. When he's talking about how much bread did you get up in the basket? How many baskets? So similarities between the two, absolutely, but some key differences as well. One of which is the description of the crowd. Interestingly here, we have a mildly positive description of a crowd in Mark. Now, if you remember throughout Mark's gospel, we've seen, if you've been with us, numerous occasions up to this point where Mark has depicted the crowd in a different light um, as uh, very much unhelpful not helpful to Jesus' ministry. Well, here, Jesus, just like in the first miraculous feeding of the 5,000, he has compassion on the crowd. But notice the reason why in verse 2. 
says, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. So this is a crowd that has not just followed Jesus. They've remained with him. And not just for a few hours through a a few teaching sessions, but apparently multiple days, three days in fact. And some of them, as Jesus says in the end of verse 3, they've come from far away. So this crowd is more than mildly interested in Jesus or just here for a quick fix and then I'll be on my way. No, some of these people have traveled a long way to see this guy Jesus and they've stuck with him. They've stayed with him for an extended period, three days. So in all this, Jesus recognizes there's a need here. These people are hungry. They need something to eat. And in the feeding of the 5,000, it's a little different. The disciples bring the people's hunger to the attention of Jesus. But here, Jesus is the one who sees it. He recognizes the need, and he is the one who's initiating. He brings the disciples to him. In both cases, the compassion, the compassion of Jesus is on full display. His heart. And in chapter 6, his compassion is there because the, the crowd was like a sheep without a shepherd. You remember that? And here, it's because these folks have remained with Jesus three days, some from far off, and they have nothing to eat. So we're starting to see some of the the similarities between the two and the differences. But I want us to focus in on one of the key, I think, similarities. In both instances, Jesus had an intentional dialogue with the disciples about meeting this need for food. This is really key. Did you ever wonder why Jesus didn't just solve this food problem in both instances by snapping his fingers? He could have. Did he have the power to do that? Absolutely, he could have. He could have just said, be satisfied. And by the power of his word, all the stomachs, thousands as as many as there were, they would have been filled In a moment. But he doesn't do that. Why? If he has the power to do that. Why take the time. And the effort. To have a conversation about it. More than that. To seat everyone down. In an orderly way. To to find out what food was already on hand. What do we have? What are we working with? To pray over it. To break the bread. And then to do this. Which would be the most time consuming. Think about this process. How long it would take. To distribute the pieces to thousands of individuals. I mean, we get impatient waiting in a drive through at a fast food restaurant. <laughs> Imagine being number 4,999th in line. You see what I'm trying to say, though? Why go through all that trouble? Take all the time if you have the power to speak and make it so. Could it be that Jesus is trying to teach? None of this is by accident. None of these things. None of these things are necessary for Jesus to simply meet the need. But he's doing more than simply meeting a temporary need. Jesus is after more than filling their bellies. He's after their hearts. Indeed, he wants them to look beyond the obvious, as our sermon title says. Look beyond the obvious. 
It's not about the bread. It's about the one who satisfies. That's the point. This reminds me of uh, that iconic movie, Karate Kid. And uh, Mr. Miyagi, you know, having him wax on, wax off, paint the fence. Now, was Mr. Miyagi wanting just that need to be met to have his car waxed and his fence painted? Like, that wasn't the point, right? He was teaching. That's what Jesus was doing. He was using this miracle to, yes, meet a need, but to teach, and especially to teach his disciples. So I wonder what was going through their heads as they were directed by Jesus to go ahead and pass all these things out. And the bread just kept coming. What were they thinking? And what was going through their minds as they gathered up those baskets full of leftovers? Like, maybe we should go into the bread business. You know how much money we could make? We have an unlimited bread generator. Or or maybe... They had similar thoughts to the the people's response at the feeding of the 5,000. As John records it, they wanted to make Jesus king after that. Maybe that's where their hearts were at, their minds. Like, you know, it'd be pretty nice to have a benevolent bread-making king. (laughs) Clearly, the crowd had missed the point. But what about the disciples? Did they see what Jesus was trying to show them? We don't need to wonder. Mark actually explicitly gives us an answer to that question at the end of chapter 6. So this is after the feeding, the first feeding, the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus is walking on the water in the midst of this storm. The disciples are scared. They don't recognize Jesus. They think he's a ghost. They're scared. And Jesus says, take heart, it is I, or ego a me, the great I am. Don't be afraid. And then Mark says this in 651. And he, Jesus, got into the boat with them. And then it says this, the wind ceased. And it says this about the disciples. They were utterly astounded. Now, why were they utterly astounded? Is it because they just witnessed this incredible sight of this man walking on water? Yes, that's part of it. Absolutely. But verse 52 tells us why. It doesn't say that. It says they were utterly astounded. Here's the reason. For they did not understand about the loaves. That's what it says. They did not understand about the loaves. What Jesus was trying to teach them by the feeding of the 5,000. They didn't get it. It says this. But their hearts were hardened. Here we have it in plain text. Plain as can be. The disciples. The disciples, the followers of Jesus, his closest companions, who he took careful time to teach, to mentor, to explain things to, their hearts were hardened. Hardened. The disciples, they did not understand what Jesus was taking pains to show them. This should be a warning to us. As one commentator put it, the disciples were very spiritually imperceptive, unaware of who was right in their midst. So alert. This is not something that you want to be spiritually imperceptive. 
This is not what you want to be, unable to see and understand spiritual truth when it's staring you right in the face. The disciples didn't recognize Jesus on that water. They saw him with their eyes, yes, but they did not recognize him because their hearts hadn't fully recognized who he was and is. Even as he climbed into the boat and the storm ceased, they remained utterly astounded because they didn't understand about the loaves. The same thing Jesus was trying to teach them by walking on water was the same thing he was trying to demonstrate by feeding the thousands with bread. He is not merely a man. He is the son of God, the Messiah. But they didn't understand yet. Their hearts were hardened. And they were not alone in this camp in terms of having hard hearts. As we return to our text to see what happens next, Jesus is once again going to run into these guys, the Pharisees. And we see that the Pharisees come out to confront him, not with a heart to learn, not a heart to see and understand, but a heart to harm. Let's pick it up in verse 10. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. Verse 11, the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign be given to this generation and he left them and got into the boat again and went to the other side so after this second feeding of the 4,000 Jesus and the disciples depart by sea just like they did after the first feeding however this time very noticeably Jesus does not walk on water he's in the boat with them from the outset and then when they get there the Pharisees come and it seems they have an intention And Mark leaves us with no doubt about what that intention is. He says in verse 11, they began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. So if Mark were not to include some of those descriptors about the fact that they came to argue with him, that they came to test him, it would at least leave open the possibility that the Pharisees were genuinely seeking to understand that they wanted to know the truth. Are you really who you say you are? Are you from heaven? Are you from God? Are you on the good side here? But very clearly, that's not the case. Mark leaves us with no room for doubt about what they are trying to do here. He says they're trying to test him. They're arguing with him. They are trying to trap him into saying something that they can use to discredit him. So their nefarious intentions are extremely clear, as is the hardened state of their heart. So how does Jesus respond to these people with hard, hard hearts? Well, we see this response in verse 12. And he sighed deeply in his spirit. Stop there for a minute. This is rather descriptive for Mark. Jesus sighs. But more than that, he not just sighs, he sighs deeply in his spirit. 
this is very clearly a, a deeply felt emotion for Jesus. And what is he feeling exactly? Well, it doesn't say. But the context clues, I think, give us some kind of indication. And the context being the hard, hard hearts of the, Pharise- or the Pharisees. And the fact that they're arguing with him and trying to trick him. And then his response gives us an indication as well. He refuses to give a sign and leaves. So what was he feeling? Sadness? Frustration when he deeply sighed in his spirit? Anger? Disappointment? I think, yeah, you could say a mix of all those things. Notice in his response in verse 12 that Jesus doesn't say, why do you seek a sign? As in the Pharisees, why do you seek a sign from me? That's not what he says. He says, why does this generation seek a sign? In Matthew's account of this story, Jesus uses the words, a wicked and adulterous generation. That's the generation that looks for a sign. And by saying this, using these words, generation in particular, Jesus is making a connection between the hearts of these religious leaders in front of him and the hearts of these people who lived a long time ago, the hearts of those who are a part of the wilderness generation. You understand who I'm talking about? The wilderness generation is those who were rescued from Egypt and then who wandered for a long time in the wilderness. They were rescued from Egypt, you remember, by signs and wonders. What is it the Pharisees are asking for here? A sign. Yeah, these guys, the wilderness generation, they were very, very quick to forget. And they continued to put God to the test in the wilderness over and over again. They kept requesting from Moses for a sign that God was with them as if they hadn't been given sign enough already. And God describes this generation as having a mind that does not understand, eyes that do not see, and ears that do not hear. That sounds familiar, that language. Keep those words in mind for what is coming next. But so it was for these Pharisees, as it was for that wilderness generation. Their hearts were hard. They did not see what they should have, what was readily apparent for them to see, what was right in front of them. And for the, for the Pharisees, they missed the living sign. The breathing sign, flesh and bones right in front of them, who they were talking to. They saw Jesus with their eyes. Yes, they heard Jesus with their ears, but they did not understand him for who he truly was and is. And so how does Jesus respond? He refuses to give them a sign and gets back in the boat and leaves them behind, leaves them in the dust. And you remember what happened to that wilderness generation. They did not enter into the promised land. Strong warning for those who have a hard, hard heart. Now, before we pick it up and see what happens next, I want us to remember Mark's inclusion of Jesus sighing deeply in his spirit. Mark didn't have to put that in there. And when Mark puts something that's pretty descriptive in there, there's obviously a reason for it. This encounter clearly caused some level of distress, emotional distress for Jesus. So keep that in mind 
as Jesus has just experienced this really disturbing encounter. And then we pick it up and see what happens next. Verse 14. Now they, the disciples, had forgotten to bring bread. And they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he, Jesus, cautioned them saying, Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. So what is Jesus, I think, evidently still thinking about here when he says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees? Who who were they just talking with? The Pharisees. I think that disturbing interaction is very much still on Jesus' mind here when he brings this up. Perhaps still on the mind of some of the disciples, except for the fact that they were thinking about something else. So Jesus' message about the Pharisees seems to be pretty clear. Watch out, he says. Beware. This is a warning. Hey, don't be like those guys. Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. It seems like a pretty straightforward message. But there was a problem. At least something in the way. Verse 14 tells us what it is. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread. They had one loaf. So think about this scene for the disciples, right? So presumably, I don't know this to be true, but maybe one of them was in charge of getting the food for the gang. And let's just say it's John. And so they get to the point where they're hungry and they turn to John and say, all right, we're ready. And then John has that realization moment. I forgot the bread. And everyone's looking at him with hungry bellies. And he goes, you know, that would have been really smart if I brought food. And then they all realize they don't have any food. What, what do we have? Oh, okay, we have one loaf. Great. This is just wonderful. And so now there's a crisis, a mini crisis, and they've got one loaf. What are they going to do? So they're starting to try to figure that out. And then in the midst of that, Jesus says, watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod and these very much bread-minded people in the moment hear one word, leaven. (laughs) And then they begin discussing among themselves the fact that they have no bread. So what you have here in very simple terms is this, a very small crisis. And it was that. This wasn't life or death. This is a very small crisis diverting the focus of Christ followers off of Christ and onto their circumstances. Does that sound familiar? As in to your life? Because it should. You and I do this all the time. And you see, the disciples had not just forgotten bread. They had forgotten who it was who stood in their midst. The disciples were doing what we do all the time. And that's the danger. The danger of being consumed with present things, present circumstances, is that we forget. We forget who God is. We forget what he has already done in the past and what he promises to do in the future. And so, again, it might be tempting for us to wonder how these disciples could possibly worry about bread when they just witnessed Jesus multiply it. 
And it might be easy for us to, to mock that wilderness generation too, who, who literally walked on a dry seabed with walls of water on both sides in one moment. And then in the next moment, we're complaining about the fact that they had no food and they'd rather be back in Egypt. You brought us out here, this whole assembly to kill us, Moses. What are you doing? It's easy for us to read these things and think, man, these people are pretty... I don't need to go there. We do this all the time. When we read scripture, something that we need to let it do is read us too. Okay? This is like a mirror. How quick we are to forget. How slow are we to understand. How weak we are to trust. As Jesus would say to his disciples multiple times, how little is your faith. In fact, that's how Matthew's gospel records the beginning of Jesus' response here as the disciples are worried about bread. In Matthew, Jesus says this to his disciples, O you of little faith. O you of little faith, why are you talking among yourselves about having no bread? And as Jesus says that to his disciples, O you of little faith, do you hear him saying it to you and your heart? Because let's be honest, we have this same tendency to freak out about temporary things that don't really matter. Bless you in the long run. And we don't freak out about bread all the time. Sometimes it is about food. But we start to really worry more than we should about things like paying the bills, performing at work, pleasing our spouse, our physical health, maybe how we are doing as a parent, whatever it might be. When these things consume us, what I mean is when we begin to worry and panic, this is an indicator that we have drifted from the truth. We've forgotten that God is with us. He is. That he is sovereign. He's always in control. Always has been. Always will be. He knows what's going on. He sees. He's in control. He cares. And we forget that in the pressure of of the present, we forget what God has already given, how he's proven himself to be faithful, and we forget then to trust him for tomorrow and today. So how does Jesus respond here to all this? Is he going to sigh deeply in his spirit again? Is he going to leave the disciples like he left the Pharisees in the dust? Is he going to give up on them and their thick skulls? I've had it. Forget you. Of course, we know Jesus doesn't do this with his followers. And I want us to see that. That there's a difference between Jesus' response to the hard-hearted Pharisees who come not with seeking hearts, but with their minds already made up. Jesus' response to them is different than it is to his disciples who want to learn, who want to understand, but who aren't getting it. That's really key. But let's look at how Jesus responds to these disciples. And I think in here we're going to see, I hope you hear as we go through here, Jesus talking to you. But I don't want you to just hear him scolding you for the sake of scolding you. In this response is good news for thick-headed people like you and me. Okay? Let's read it together. Verse 17. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? 
Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? In Matthew's gospel, Mark doesn't record it here, but there's this funny line after this barrage of questions from Jesus. I think it's kind of humorous where it says, the disciples then understood that Jesus wasn't talking about bread. (laughs) Okay, yes, you think. So Jesus comes with question after question, pointed questions, yeah. All essentially saying the same thing. How can you not see what has been extremely apparent this whole time? And since you can't seem to get it, let me spell it out for you. And he goes and tells them about the the feedings. How many baskets full did you pick up? These are questions of rebuke, no doubt. But it's not just rebuke for the sake of rebuke. The purpose of true rebuke is to bring someone back to where they should be, where they need to be. And that's what Jesus is trying to do here. Jesus' question, do you not yet understand, is both at the same time piercing to us because it identifies a problem that we have. It doesn't feel good to hear that you got something wrong. But it's also hopeful, very hopeful, I think, because it implies that Jesus wants us to understand. And more than that, that we can understand with his help. And that is good news, friends. Hear this, God desires for you to get it right, for you to understand, to see and to know who Jesus is and the hope you can have in him. That's why Jesus was having this conversation with the disciples. That's why he was there in the flesh to make himself known. And that's why he was hammering into the disciples here because he wants them. He desires for them to understand. And he's going to, as we'll read on in Mark, he's going to continue to help them understand all the way to going to the cross and rising from the dead. But we should be warned that what gets in the way is us and our own hard hearts, hearts that are quick to forget, slow to listen and learn, Hearts that are easily caught up with the things of this world that don't really matter in the long run. And so the challenge for us this morning, as often earthly-minded people as we are, it's to remember. Remember who's in the boat with you as you go through life. Jesus' rebuke was not about primarily their failure to hear his, his warning about the Pharisees and Herod. He was far more concerned that his disciples, his followers, were failing to understand the meaning of his presence with them. All of life, you see, all of it, the good, the bad, everything in between, it's illuminated. It's properly understood in the light of knowing Jesus as Lord and Savior. The truth is that crises in our lives, they're coming. Big ones, small ones. Maybe you're in a crisis right now. What you need in crisis, more than anything else, 
It's not bread. It's not a magic cure for your conflict. What you need more than anything else is a stronger understanding in your heart that Jesus is Lord of all, even the circumstances you find yourself in. That's why the old song says so beautifully, what we need to do is turn, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full on his wonderful face. And it says this, the things of earth, ah, the things of earth, they'll grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. You see, life isn't about bread. It's not about these physical bodies we live in. They're temporary. It's not about the temporary pleasures of this earth, all it has to offer. It's about Jesus and his glory and grace. I hope you know him this morning. For in Jesus is everything you are looking for. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for the revelation of Jesus, for the gift of this God-man who walked on this same earth that we walked on, who took pains to show us who he was and is and forever will be. We thank you for his sacrifice on the cross for sinners like us, so that we might not only understand and see, but that we might have new life, forgiveness from all the bad we've ever done, all the good we've failed to do. Lord, we, we pray and ask that as we leave this place, as we walk through life, that you help us to remember who's in the boat with us. Help us to remember Jesus, to see him with eyes that see, and to hear him with ears that hear. Would you do that work in our hearts as we go? For each one of us, I pray that. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. We're going to transition now to a time of communion. Communion is a telling of the story of Jesus. As followers of Jesus, it's something that he commanded us to do, to remember him. And so this practice is intended for those of us who not just know the story, who have heard the story, but who know the one the story is about, who know and believe in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And so if that's you this morning, I invite you to come and receive the elements up front. Let's come now and remember our Savior together. Would you come? mentioned earlier that we are coming up in Mark's gospel to this very significant moment where Peter gets it. And he says to Jesus, you are the Christ. And right after that, Mark records Jesus explaining to his disciples that he must suffer and die. Mark says it this way. It's in chapter 8, verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must 
suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And the disciples, you know, don't like the sound of that. They continue to have bread-minded thinking. But Jesus shares this because he knows it's the case. The Son of Man must suffer many things. Perhaps your Bible says it differently. The Son of Man, it was necessary for him to suffer many things and to be killed. Jesus knew that the only way to save us from the big problem we all have, sin, all the bad we've ever done, all the good we've failed to do, the only way to satisfy God's justice and to forgive us was for him to go to the cross. And the good news for us today is that Jesus didn't just understand that and know it. He endured it. He went there and he died for you and for me. Took the wrath upon his shoulders that we deserve in our stead. This little cracker reminds us of Jesus' body on that day, broken, crushed for us. Let's remember him together. And this cup, the juice reminds us of his blood shed for us. Let's remember him together. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for the gift of Jesus. Thank you for making a way to save us. We know we could never save ourselves, and you've made a way through Jesus. Thank you for his sacrifice in our stead on that cross. Help us to remember the cost indeed, the great cost of our redemption, and that we are those who need a Savior. Give us grateful hearts, Lord. Help us to remember the wonderful truth that Jesus rose on the third day and he is alive. And because of that, if we have put our trust in him, we have hope too. A hope that endures through all that lies ahead of us in this life. Lord, I pray for every heart in this room that you bring us a little closer to Jesus today. Help us to cling a little bit more to the Savior. And I pray in his name. In the name of Jesus, amen.